word. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. We end our reading from God's word. The three most prominent uses for salt in the ancient world were to preserve or to clean or to flavor. In all three uses, salt was beneficial. It was good or a benefit. It was good when salt kept meat fresh, the times before we have modern refrigeration. It was good when salt was used as an agent in cleaning, adding to the cleaning power of the water. It was good when salt was added to food to enhance the flavoring. In the same way, the disciples of Christ were to have a good influence on the society around. Most famously, Jesus said over in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, You are the salt the earth. Salt was a necessity of life, and so the people of God are a necessity in society. The world cannot endure without salt, and the world cannot endure without Christians. So our main point is Christ calls us to true discipleship. We could call it saltiness uh, tonight uh, by these three characteristics we studied previously in this chapter, staying humble, keeping on serving, and preserving peace in the church. So we'll look at this from these uh, three angles. First is avoid causing others spiritual harm with your pride. Secondly, to avoid causing yourself spiritual harm. Renounce your sinful habit of not serving. And three, retain your saltiness, resulting in peace with others. So first, point one, avoid causing others spiritual harm with your pride. We start off with verse 42 where Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. What a statement. First of all, who are the little ones in verse 42 in mind? The ones that we ought not to cause to stumble. The little ones have shown up throughout the Gospel of Mark and even within our chapter 9. Think of, uh, if you want to glance back there, verses 38 to 41. One of the little ones was this unknown man who was driving out demons. That would be a little one. Or in verse 36, the literal little one, the child, who was being hugged by the arms of Jesus and presented as an object lesson to his disciples. That child would be one of the little ones. Other little ones were the people whom that child represented. It wasn't just that child and it's not just young ones. But it's all the disciples who are not one of the 12 disciples. All are little ones, in a sense. All who would 
offer a cup of water were the little ones. So the little ones are any Christians of any age, any number of years. The little ones are anyone who's vulnerable to being led astray or tripped up. Those are the little ones. It's really quite a pervasive group that Jesus cautions us not to cause people to stumble. Every single Christian matters so much to Jesus that for one, to be tripped up is an offense that deserves the death penalty. In fact, as we look at this gruesome verse, it deserves more than the death penalty. Wait, what do you mean by more than the death penalty? What Worse can you do to someone than to take their life? You could offer ongoing suffering. You could offer a gruesome scene such as this one to have a fate, as is described here, and as we know, looking ahead, to have ongoing death, continuing death, suffering death, and suffering death again, over and over again, a picture of hell itself, which Jesus then mentions Later in our passage, the punishment of ongoing death in the lake of fire is worse than even the death penalty. So the lesson in verse 42 is that if we were to cause another's spiritual shipwreck, it would be so serious an offense, says our great teacher and Savior Jesus, that a quick drowning is preferred over the fate that is deserved by such a crime. A quick drowning, I say, because... You notice it says here in verse 42, a great millstone. There are two sizes of millstones. One is one that humans could turn in order to grind the grain. The other is one that is so big that only a working animal, such as a donkey, would be able to turn that stone. That's the great millstone. So it's one of the largest stones in the ancient society And it had a hole in the middle for the grain to be fed into to be ground one stone against another. That hole was to be placed over one's head like a gigantic cowboy hat. And then that person with the millstone around their head was to be thrown into the sea. That's why I say quick drowning. And that, the donkey pulled heavy weight, ensuring an immediate death by drowning is better than what is deserved by causing another to sin. So our spiritual pride, having damage on another person, is a very serious matter before our Savior. True discipleship requires otherwise. And we move then to verses 43 to 49, that secondly now, we are to avoid causing ourselves spiritual harm. We are to renounce our sinful habit of not serving. But the difference between verse 42 that we looked at already And now verses 43 to 48 that we're studying is that the person now being tripped up is no longer someone else, but it's your very self. Each of us is warned by these coming verses now against harming ourselves spiritually. You trip up yourself when you commit a sin with your own hand, with your own foot, with your own eyes. Danger comes to each believer not only from outside of ourselves, temptations of the world, temptations of the devil, but temptations that we present by our own flesh, by our own selves. Danger comes from within. We are each called then to examine ourselves individually to see which aspects of my behavior, which aspects of my tastes, my interests, 
is a potential danger point for my own spiritual downfall. And upon such personal examination and discovery, we each are being coached here to take extreme action according to our individual danger points because this matter is so very, very important. So the word pictures are in front of us. I'll read it out again. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, you notice verse 44 is missing and verse 46 is missing. It's because there was a repetition there of what we see uh, later in verse 48. So imagine verse 48 being repeated twice in there. The manuscripts differ And the English Standard Version went with not having them reprinted here. But if you continue to read with verse 45, And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Verse 47, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Verse 48, Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So the word pictures of one's own hand or foot being amputated by oneself, or the tearing out of one's own eye, are so shocking, so graphic, so drastic, and so disturbing, that it's difficult for me to stand in front of you and draw your attention to such things. It's hard for us to read, much less sit and really think through how that would be in our personal experience. And this whole thing is intentional. Our Savior, the greatest teacher that ever lived, is right on and fitting in what he's bringing to our attention. The message is that the matter of causing yourself spiritual harm is a matter of ultimate seriousness with which we should give our highest attention and our greatest commitment. Nothing less than eternal life or eternal death is at stake in our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and our commitment to God spiritually. So Jesus demanded here the most drastic renunciation of sin in order to avoid the unquenchable fire. He did not regard his own 12 disciples as being immune from the need to examine themselves in this way and to take appropriate and immediate action to address any spiritual need that they might find. The passage here is the only place in the Gospel of Mark where the word Gehenna, which is the word translated in our passage, hell, is used. It's used here three times, verse 43, verse 45, and verse 47, each with a new descriptor. Verse 43, it's described by Mark as a place of the unquenchable fire. In verse 45, a place into which people are thrown. In verse 47, leaking into verse 48, it's a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is a serious matter. It's mentioned a lot by our Lord Jesus, not quite as much in the Gospel of Mark as it is in the other Gospels, but it's a place of reality and a place of torment. To avoid that, these lesser problems that we would do to ourselves are to be preferred. Fire is mentioned as an agent of God's judgment and destruction in such a place. And in addition, there's a mixture of two word pictures here about fire, but then also adding a worm never dying, a fire never ending, a worm never dying. These two images being brought together maybe are familiar to you. They are borrowed from Isaiah chapter 66, the last chapter, 
verse 24, the last verse, which reads this way, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Isaiah 66, 24. The final words of the whole book of Isaiah clearly meant to be a lasting impression that is constantly kept in mind as a perpetual caution for readers of the book of Isaiah. And so Jesus picks up that image and presses it home to his disciples here. The two, the worm that doesn't die and the fire that doesn't quit, are a word picture presented first by the prophet Isaiah as the condition in which the dead bodies of God's enemies will be seen, presumably as both I want to apologize for this, but I ought not to because it's simply declaring the eternal word of God. The decomposing bodies with the help of worms and yet the burning at the same time on the battlefield of those bodies after God's victory. So the combination of both fire and worms is the fate of the wicked who rebel against God is a grotesque, to be sure, and yet a powerful deterrence against rebelling against God. God. If that should be the fate of the wicked, we have no business going in that direction and do whatever it takes to keep from going in that direction spiritually. So we move on to our third point, verse uh, 49 to 50. Verse 40, uh, retain your saltiness resulting in peace with others. So verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. See, the extreme seriousness of what we've already been covering, Jesus now addresses here. The demands of discipleship, the call for renunciation of sins, prepare the disciples as as his hearers and us as the readers of the Gospel of Mark to consider the cost of following this Jesus. The universal scope of now being presented in verse 49 includes the word everyone. If you'll notice carefully, verse 49 says, Everyone... And it reminds us of the conviction with which Jesus had predicted his own suffering. He will come under suffering as well. Mark 8, verse 31, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. Again, Mark 9, 12, The Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Again, Mark 9, 31, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. That's our context. That's the stream of thought with which the chapter is going and in which Jesus makes this statement now in verse 49. So here the phrase, everyone will be salted with fire, is reasonably to be considered to have a relationship to the cost of taking up one's cross and following Jesus who will take up his own cross and be killed on it. We are told in Mark 8 verse 34 If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is to take up his cross. His followers are to take up our cross. It's because Christ went to the cross for us that we are saved, that we have become disciples. We are made disciples by Christ. And to use our illustration of salt, we are made salty by Christ. More about that in a moment. But why this phrase in verse 49 Salted with fire. Why are salt and fire being mentioned together? 
We get one ancient instance of salt and fire together in Leviticus 2.13. I'll read, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. So the requirement there in Leviticus 2.13, when an Old Testament sacrifice of grain was burned on the altar with fire, was that salt would always accompany that sacrifice. But that wasn't all. It was not just with the grain offerings. It was specifically added that in Leviticus, that Leviticus quote, Leviticus 2.13, that salt must be offered with all your offerings. I'll read it again. <clears throat> shall not, you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. It's a sweeping generalization. That each offering offered to God is offered with salt and then it's burned. Salt and fire together. So what does it mean in our study passage tonight in verse 49 that everyone will be salted with a fire? It seems to portray a word picture of temple sacrifices. Salted with fire in the mindset of Jesus who's offering himself to die, calling his disciples to be willing to die seems to show us the sacrifice to God, the temple sacrificial system. But there's one difference. Instead of sacrificial animals being salted, it is the people, the worshipers themselves, who are to be salted. The dedication of the worshipers to the suffering Messiah is like the dedication of the sacrificial animals. That is, that the worshipers, just like the ancient animals, were totally and irrevocably dedicated to the Lord. The animals, in their instance, were burned so they could no longer be used for chores on the farm. And the worshipers were put to the living sacrifice of the Lord so they could no longer be used for chores in the world. All for God. Dedicated now wholly to God. For God. In Numbers 18, verse 19, we read this. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. Listen, it is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. A covenant of salt. Salt is now linked with being holy and pure and having a relationship, a permanent agreement and relationship with God. It's linked with being holy before the Lord and in a relationship with the Lord, a covenant of salt with the Lord so that persons who are salted with fire are persons who are totally dedicated to God's service as if the sacrifice of burning an offering to God is us burning our very selves in all of our moments. And even if that service is costly in terms of personal suffering, that person is still completely dedicated to God's service, whatever it takes. So salt symbolizes that we would serve the Lord in a way that we would serve no one else. There are services, for example, that we might perform for the Lord that we would not do for any company, such as a a missions trip. You might do that for the Lord and would never do it for your boss. Things that we would do for no one else, we would do for the Lord. So we get now in verse 50 a further statement about salt related to discipleship. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? 
So salt seems to no longer represent an experience undergone by a disciple, but rather salt represents a good quality to be preserved. But the connection is still evident. There's different angles on what Jesus is saying about discipleship and its connection to salt. Salt has various benefits, and Jesus is presenting various aspects of discipleship as salt. The believer who has undergone the process of salting with fire is a believer who's rendered salty by that process. You're left salty, remain salty. We do not have salt inherently in ourselves. We need Christ, and we needed him to die to cleanse us of our sins and to rise again to provide for us the humility that we need, the willingness to serve that we need, and the Christ-likeness that we need in our lives. So it seems evident that our Lord Jesus has explained within the context of chapter 9 what he means by salt. It's a further explanation of the raw, radical commitment of discipleship that we've seen in his previous words in verses 42 and following. So that's our study. How does it apply? Three applications spinning off the three points of the sermon outline. Number one, in Christ be a blessing. In Christ be a blessing. Verse 42 showed us that we should not cause a little one to sin. That would be a curse or a negative, would not be a blessing. But verse 37 says the same thing the opposite way. Verse 37 Jesus told us to receive a child in the name of Jesus. Isn't that the same thing as saying don't hurt a child, don't hurt a little one? Also, receive a child or receive a little one, receive a fellow believer. Being salt is being a blessing. Being being salt in this respect means to have the general quality of being beneficial to have around. Verse 50, salt is good. As long as it's salty, be like that. Be that salt. Be good to have around. Be a blessing because Christ is in us. Because he has cleansed us from our sins and he's filled us by his spirit, we can be a blessing. Our presence ought to have a healing and preserving influence on our surroundings. Our involvement ought to awaken consciences of others, elevate the conversation, promote honesty, encourage a better atmosphere. And I've had this experience happen to me probably a lot of times because people know I'm a pastor. Oh, sorry, Reverend, they'll say after they just said something they shouldn't have said. But the more you present that you are with Christ, the same can happen to you. To promote a good environment, to promote honesty. Our presence makes a difference because Christ is in us. And Christ has said in Matthew 5:13, "You are the salt of the earth." It reflects itself in being open and loving to all, accepting and tolerant of all people. Those with painted hair, those with piercings everywhere and tattoos everywhere, and those who say that they're one gender when really they're another, we embrace and accept them, but not their sins. It's that kind of salt that's needed. In a divisive culture, we are not tolerant of their sins, I repeat. 
but we are welcoming to people. We bring people back around to decorum and civility that is sorely lacking in our day. Do you really think we're the first generation that lacks decorum and civility? We can recreate and rebuild loving communities in our schools and our homes, especially starting in our churches. Being a blessing is for those who are in Christ. Being in Christ makes all the difference. But if salt loses its saltiness, if Christians are not a blessing to one another and a blessing to our communities, then what good are we? Says Jesus. The first application point is to be a blessing. What else would we be? The second application point is because Christ died for you, be willing to pay any cost required for allegiance to him. Because Christ died for you, be willing to pay any cost required for allegiance to him. Our study in verse 40 of the phrase salted with, sorry, verse 49, with the phrase salted with fire has showed us that because Christ offered himself for us, we're now equipped to offer our very selves to God. We think about cutting off our hand, cutting off our foot if it causes us to sin. And what happened to Jesus' hand? What happened to Jesus' foot? He was crucified for us and they pierced his hand through and they pierced his feet through. It's causing us to see what is required in following a crucified Savior. Because he died and rose, we have become living sacrifices. As Paul wrote, Romans 12, 1, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Jesus is saying here the same thing Paul was saying there in Romans 12, 1, count the cost of following a crucified Savior. Did Jesus not say repeatedly in chapter 8 and 9, he's going to be killed? And these are his disciples. These are his followers. What would they expect other than they're on the pathway of suffering and maybe even paying the price of their lives. What he is communicating to us here is that walking with God is serious business. Discipleship is a serious matter, and we ought to be willing to lose a hand, lose a foot, lose an eye in our service to God if, it, if that's what's required for us to be loyal to him. Those body parts, you understand, are just representative what they represent is that halfway commitment to Christ will not be sufficient. If your hand is more important to you than being obedient to Christ, that's halfway commitment and it will not suffice. We have to remain willing always to lose anything for Christ, even the entirety of our lives, to die. Any self-denial short of dying should be an easier cost than even dying any sacrifice any cost and the point here is that we are willing to suffer to be obedient to follow christ to be more like christ let's try to illustrate pastor dietrich bonhoeffer you may remember his name the german pastor during world war ii he wrote a book called the cost of discipleship he wrote this and i quote suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master, end quote. While many Christians left Germany, pastors and Christians, Pastor Bonhoeffer stayed 
in Germany and stood up against the atrocities of the war, was arrested, was imprisoned, and in April 9 of 1945, he was hanged as the Nazi regime was collapsing. Being salty is being willing to suffer, even to die, to serve Christ and to serve others. That's the radical nature of this passage, and Christ is telling us the radical nature of following him. This is at the core of Christianity. A better way to look at your hand, a better way to consider your foot, a better way to understand the use of your eye is that they're given to you in order for you to show allegiance to Christ by serving others, by serving those who are Christ's. If your hand is not serving others, what good is your hand doing for Christ and his kingdom? Put some salt in your hand, if you will. If your foot or your eye are not serving others, then what good are your foot or your eye doing for your walk or for the kingdom of Christ and his expansion of his kingdom? God gave you your hand. God gave you your feet. God gave you your eyes in order for you to serve, serve, serve. Because Christ died for you, be willing to pay any cost required for allegiance to him, and the cost is serve Serve, serve. A living sacrifice continuously serves. So here's the question. Are you willing to serve? This is our second application point. To be willing to pay any cost, to perform any service in allegiance to Christ includes being willing to serve in the ways that he has placed before us. We could use our hands to bring a cup of water to someone. The illustration he used in this chapter. Or we could make a meal adding it to the water. We could use our feet to go visit someone who's sick or lonely, a little person. We could use our eyes to watch another person's children or read scripture to someone who needs wisdom and encouragement. This is being willing to do anything for Christ who died for us and rose again to give us victory. Because he died for us, we're willing to pay any cost Allegiance to him. This is our second application point and our third and last one. Go to Christ for enough salt to be a peacemaker. We get this out of verse 50. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So go to Christ for salt to be a peacemaker. Now consider again our context once more. The absence of salt in verse 34. Remember verse 34, that the disciples had, quote, argued with one another about who was the greatest. Isn't that just an embarrassing moment? The disciples are walking from one scene of Jesus' ministry to another scene of Jesus' ministry, and the conversation that they take up between those two locations is which of us is the greatest? Embarrassing. Saltless. It's the sort of problem that Jesus is still addressing here in verse 50. He's been addressing it all along. We've touched on this as we've gone through the passages. But he's still on that in verse 50 when he says, Have salt in yourselves. You see, a properly salted Christian does not argue about which of us is the greatest. None of the disciples should be arguing about it. Any one of them should have ended the argument. A properly salted Christian would not do that. We live at peace with one another. But how? Jesus gave us the recipe. 
just add salt. That's it. That's the recipe. Let's say it happens to you. Someone starts arguing with you about him or her being greater than you. How do you deal with that? How you deal with that is how the disciples should have dealt with that, and it's simple. Have enough salt. Have enough personal maturity. Have enough understanding of the cross and the Savior of the cross. Have enough understanding about your own sinfulness they respond to the other person by saying, I completely agree, of course you're greater than I am. And you mean it. Paul wrote in Philippians 2, verse 3, in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. That's the Christian outlook. The properly salted Christian views himself as the least significant person in the room, any room they enter. Everyone else is more significant than I am. It's the secret sauce of peacemaking with these three words, just add salt. Listen to how Paul wrote about peace within Christian relationships again in Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another, but keep listening. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Why would those sentences follow after what he says, live in harmony with one another? Because the thing that prevents harmony with one another is pride. I'm greater than you. The thing that promotes harmony and peace with each other is humility that says, you're greater than me. And some of the rabbis of the Old Testament had writings that spoke about salt and salt that represented wisdom. Salt represented Pleasing speech as we speak to one another. Good speech towards one another is a necessary part of peaceful relationships. And consider how Paul wrote clearly again about this sort of thing. After all, Paul was himself a well-trained rabbi and also became a New Testament apostle. So here's Paul writing in Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Colossians 4, 6. Paul gave the same recipe that Jesus gave. It's the secret sauce. Just add salt. The connection of salt with wisdom was well understood, and Paul was saying it remains true in all generations of human societies. Christians are always needed to bring salt back to the speech of each generation. Since every generation of human history has had a struggle with harshness, a struggle with damaging words, Paul and Jesus provide clearly for us the solution. Christ making his people salty. Christ making Christians speak like Christ. He is the salt. Salt means being like Christ, being worthy of the name Christian. Christians letting their speech be gracious. Believers not following the culture. God forbid. Rather, Christians leading the culture out of the morass, out of this difficult, dark age, and distributing first here, first in our homes, first in our churches, kind words. Gracious ways, gracious words back into the societies 
discourse. So three applications points. In Christ, be a blessing. Because he died for you, be willing to pay any cost required for allegiance to Christ. And third, go to Christ for enough salt to be a peacemaker. Let's pray. Father in heaven,